There are 1,189 chapters in our English translation of the Bible. 1,189. There are a number of ways you can break down those chapters to get a handle on the message of the Bible. For example, you can look at the Bible as a book composed of two parts. It's a very common perspective. The Old Testament and the New Testament. God made a covenant with the people of Israel, and that covenant is often referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus fulfilled that covenant in his life and death. He fulfilled it by teaching it accurately. He fulfilled it by living it perfectly. And he fulfilled it by dying to pay its penalty. That is why on the night before his death, Jesus said that his death would inaugurate the new covenant. So today we are under the new covenant. And that is one of the ways you can look at the overall message of the Bible. Divided up between two parts, Old Testament, New Testament, or Old Covenant, New Covenant. But there's another way to section the Bible. And that is the angle that I want us to consider in this message. As I mentioned a moment ago, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Consider this breakdown. The first two chapters describe life before sin. The next 1,185 chapters describe life during sin. And the final two chapters describe life after sin. Life before sin, life during sin, and life after sin. Life before sin is described in Genesis 1 and 2. Turn with me, please, to the very first book of the Bible and the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Genesis is God's own account of His creating and making of the universe. And it actually goes into the fourth verse of chapter 2. Why do I say that this is God's own account? Here's the answer. Because no other author was present when God did this. Therefore, either God himself wrote this account, or he dictated it to the human author who recorded it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is no other source of information for this account. So this is God's description of his creating and making work of the universe. And by the way, Jesus affirmed the creation account of the book of Genesis in Matthew 19 and in Mark 13.10. So how did this universe get here? How did all of these things that we see around us get here? According to Jesus, God created this universe. So let's look at how life began and how it was before sin. Verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This verse tells us that God began his work by creating the heavens and the earth. Now understand something. This is not heaven and planet earth yet, as we will see in a moment. This was when God created the substance or matter or elements that he would use to make space and planet earth. This is creation ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing. 
God did not use any existing material to make these elements mentioned here in verse 1. That statement is not true when it comes to the other components of creation that are described in this chapter. For example, when God made the sun, the moon, and the stars, He did not create them out of nothing. He did not create them ex nihilo. He made them or formed them from the existing material that He had created out of nothing as stated here in verse 1. So the very first thing that God did was to create out of nothing the fundamental substance of everything we see or, or the basic elements of this universe, space, matter, and time. In the beginning, that's time. God created the heavens, that's space or spaces. And the earth, that's matter. Space, matter, and time now exist as you read verse 1. But what was this matter originally like? Verse 2 says, The earth, the matter, was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What is this verse describing? It is describing the condition of this God-created matter as black hole matter without atomic form. All the matter is in one deep, formless, liquid mass. But it doesn't stay that way long because the Spirit of God, who was involved in creation along with the Father and the Son, was hovering over the deep, formless, liquid mass. And verse 3 tells us, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God speaks light, and this begins the process of changing the black hole into the universe we see today. Verse 4 tells us, God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. So here at this point in creation, God separates the light from the darkness. Again, listen closely. This is different from the dividing of light from darkness that God describes down in verse 18, where he, he divides day and night on planet earth. This is not the same thing. However, verse 18 may be a clue as to what God is doing here in verse 4. The dividing of light from darkness here in verse 4 might be the origination of atomic structure because light as we know it, originates from the electron, which in atomic structure is separated from the nucleus. So light is introduced into God's creation, and God saw that it was good. Verse 5 tells us, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. That's day one of creation. It is impossible to comprehend it completely. We can apprehend it somewhat, but we cannot comprehend it completely. Verse 6 tells us, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. On day two of creation, God made the firmament, or the expanse. The term firmament means extended surface. 
Here in the Genesis account, we are not told how God made the firmament. We are just told that he did. But many scriptures elsewhere refer back to this event and describe it as the stretching out of the heavens by God's hands. Those verses indicate that this act of God is one of the greatest feats of his work. The stretching out of the spaces between the liquid masses of matter moves matter to the farthest regions of space. Here in verse 8, we are told that God called the firmament heaven. Thus, heaven in verse 8 refers to the vastness of space, and the heavens, back in verse 1, refers to the substance of which it was made. The way we might say this in modern English would be, God called the vast number of stretched out spaces, space. Then verse 9 tells us, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. Now we're talking about planet earth. He called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb that yields seed and the fruit, fruit tree which, that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were the third day. This is day three. God forms planet earth from the matter which was left under the expanse. He separates the liquid from the solid parts and he fashions it for life. Then he makes all of the plants. Verse 14 tells us, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. God takes the liquid masses of matter that are spread throughout the universe and he shapes them into the sun, the moon, and the billions of stars. He puts them into the proper orbits to mark out signs and seasons and days and years. And then verse 20, Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures, and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. That is the fifth day of creation on which God filled the sky and waters with animals. And then verse 24 tells us, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creature, the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, which 
uh, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Hopefully you notice the repetition of the phrase, according to its kind. God repeats that for a reason. This is God's way of emphasizing the fact that all organisms always have offspring according to their kind. In the evolutionary theory, over time, organisms give birth to offspring that is of a different kind than the original organism. God wants to make sure that we understand the truth. It's always according to its kind. Always, always, always. And then verse 26 tells us, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, uh, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree who is... A tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. It was very good. Very good. Because sin has not corrupted it. Sin has not marred it. It hasn't stained it or tainted it. This is the pinnacle of God's creating and making work here on day 6. And because it is, verses 4 through 25 of chapter 2 fill in important details about the sixth day of creation. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittakel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die." This is life before sin. God created and fashioned a universe in which man and beast could live, and he made us human beings in his own image. And what an amazing creation it was. Just look around you today. Even though it is marred by sin and stained by sin, creation is amazing. But the original creation was far superior. Over and over again, the text tells us that God saw that it was good. Adam and Eve had unbroken fellowship with God in the glorious garden. 
There was nothing incomplete or insufficient or improper about anything in this universe. This was life before sin. So how did this world get so messed up? The answer is found in chapter 3. Chapter 3 of Genesis verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Beloved, this, this, that we just read is the most horrible event ever to happen. That's it. There is no way I can describe to you how awful this was because this was the day when sin entered the human race. Every sin and wrong that has taken place since can be traced right back to this day when the human race was plunged into sin. And the consequences are horrifying. Think of every bad thing you know. Every bad thing you can comprehend or think of. It goes right back to this. In fact, the consequences are so terrible that one day they would cost the perfect Son of God his very life. Disease, death, destruction, hatred, suffering, misery, and hell are all a part of the human experience because of what happened on this day. Because of sin, this wonderful world that God created was put under a curse. That's why there are earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, other natural disasters. This world is out of sync because of the curse of sin. And that's our problem also. The reason society and our world are so messed up is because of sin. The reason relationships are so messed up is because of sin. Notice the following verses. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field on your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be toward your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat, cursed is the ground 
for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. Nature is cursed because of sin. Certain aspects of womanhood are cursed because of sin. Certain aspects of manhood are cursed because of sin. Marriage suffers under the effects of the curse on sin. The end of verse 16 describes a power struggle that is in all marriages. It's a power struggle for dominance and control. The wife has a tendency to try to control and manipulate her husband. The husband has a tendency to dominate and lord it over his wife. Sin has brought about devastating results in this world in which we live. In fact, in the very next chapter of Genesis, we are told about the first murder. A man slit the throat of his own brother. It's difficult to fathom. But that's the kind of thing that goes on in our world because of sin. Life before sin was very good But if there's one word that sums up life under the reign of sin, it is the word death. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. The first two chapters of the Bible are about life being very good. But the next 1,185 chapters are about death. The death of animals in the animal kingdom, the death of people in the human race, the death of sacrificial animals throughout the Old Testament era, and the death of the Son of God to pay for sin. It's all about death because sin brought death. On a personal note, just think about how many of your associates, classmates, friends, family members have died. How many funerals have you attended in your life? You probably can't count the number. Death reigns for 1,185 chapters of the Bible. Genesis 5 gives us the first genealogy after sin entered the universe. And eight times it says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. That is what marks and characterizes life during the time of sin. Life before sin was very good, but life during this time of sin is dominated by death. Even Jesus, the flawless Son of God, tasted death. Turn over from the first book of the Old Testament to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 27. Here in this chapter of Matthew's gospel is the record of the only time in all of eternity when there was a rupture in the perfect relationships of the members of the triune Godhead. Never before was there and never since has there been and never again will there be a separation of any kind between the Father and the Son. But that did take place on this occasion. When Jesus took our sin and became sin for us, God the Father poured out His holy and righteous wrath on His Son who was our substitute. Jesus was under the wrath of God, and as a result, he was alienated from God for the only time in all of eternity, past, present, or future. And it's impossible for us to understand this completely. The reason why I say that is because we cannot comprehend something that we don't know or have never experienced or to which we cannot relate. And what I mean in this specific situation is that we have never, ever known 
perfect, unbroken fellowship with the Father. Never. We were born as sinners, separated from God. We have never known perfect, unbroken, unhindered fellowship with the Father. But that's all Jesus ever knew. So when Jesus experienced separation from the Father, it was much more of a shock, much more of a contrast, because he had never been under the wrath of God and separated from him relationally. In Matthew 27, we pick up the story in verse 45, where Matthew tells us from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Jesus has already been on the cross for three hours at this point, but at noon, something eerie took place. Darkness covered all the land, and the implication of these statements is that it remained that way until three in the afternoon. Three hours of pitch black darkness. Why did this darkness happen? The next verse gives us a clue. Verse 46 says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From noon until three in the afternoon, Jesus was separated from his Father relationally. Again, I say, beloved, there's absolutely no way we can appreciate or fathom how excruciating this was for both the Father and the Son. The Son was separated from the Father because the Son became our substitute to experience the righteous wrath of God against sin. That's why there was darkness over all the land. The question is sometimes asked, how is it that the death of Jesus on the cross over a period of several hours was able to pay for the sins of people who otherwise would have to spend an eternity in hell paying for their sins? There are at least a couple answers to that question. Number one, because Jesus was eternal, his death has eternal merit or value. The eternal one was able to pay a price that would take a human being an eternity to pay because of the fact that Jesus was eternal. And secondly, the intensity. Please hear this. The intensity of the suffering Jesus endured and experienced in those hours was exceedingly beyond anything any sinner will experience in eternity. Because it was so unnatural and so foreign for Jesus in light of his perfect holiness. Thus, the death of Jesus was more than sufficient to pay for the sins of those who otherwise would have to spend eternity in hell. He drank the full cup of God's wrath and was separated from his Father throughout that time. It is worth noting that this is the only time the only time in all the life and ministry of Jesus that he did not address God as his Father. This is it. The only time. In the Gospel records, there are 170 times in which Jesus addressed God as Father and 21 times when he said, My Father. In the high priestly prayer in John 17, which was just before the arrest, so only a few hours before this, Jesus addressed God as Father six times. But not here. Not here. Instead, he said, my God, my God. During the time when Jesus was suffering under the wrath of God, he did not have a paternal relationship with God, but rather a judicial relationship with God. 
That is why Jesus said, my God, my God, not my father, my father. During this time, Jesus was relating to God as judge and not as father. Verse 47 tells us some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We know from Luke's gospel that when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Did you notice the change? He said, Father. He could say, Father, now, because just prior to this, he had said, it is finished. In Greek, that is one word, and it means paid in full. So when Jesus said paid in full, it was a statement of exclamation because he had drunk the cup of God's wrath completely. Then he yielded up his spirit. Notice that. He yielded up his spirit. There is a sense in which the crucifixion did not kill Jesus. Because twice we are told that at the end he still had the strength to cry out with a loud voice, In other words, Jesus did not fade away slowly into death. But rather, he died at the very moment he chose to die. Literally, he dismissed his spirit from his body. John 19.30 tells us he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Notice the order. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Normally, a man dies first, then his head falls. The exact opposite took place when Jesus died. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit, which illustrates the fact that no one took his life from him. He died the very moment he chose to die. This is the result of and culmination of life on planet Earth during the reign of sin. Since the key word for life during sin is death, It shouldn't surprise us to hear that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more death. That leads us to the final two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. Turn there with me, please. This is life after sin. Life after sin. What began in Genesis is culminated here in Revelation. In Genesis 1-1, we have the record of the creation of the heavens and the earth. In Revelation 21-1, we have the new heavens and the new earth. In Genesis 1-16, there is the first mention of the sun. Revelation 21-23 says that in the new heaven and new earth, there is no need of the sun. In Genesis 1-5, the night is established. Revelation 22-5 says that in the new heavens and new earth, there is no night. In Genesis 1.10, there is the first mention of the seas. Revelation 21.1 says that in the new heaven and new earth, there is no more sea. In Genesis 3.14-17, through 17, the curse on sin is announced. Revelation 22.3 says that in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no more curse. In Genesis 3.19, death enters history. Revelation 21.4 says that in the new heaven and new earth, there is no more death. 
In Genesis 3, 24, man is driven from the Garden of Eden. Revelation 22, 14 says, man is restored to paradise. In Genesis 3, 17, sorrow and pain were multiplied. Revelation 21, 4 says that in the new heaven and new earth, there will be no more tears or pain. This is life after sin. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death. Don't miss that. No more death. Since we began this message, only our Lord knows how many people have died around the world. Death happens all the time. I read about a highway engineer who said that the biggest issue that has to be considered when planning freeways is not the mountains, the valleys, or the rivers. It's all the cemeteries. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what it said. Our nation and our world are covered with cemeteries because death is so vast. But there will never be another death in the new heaven and the new earth. Death will be forever banished. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Once we get to the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more death. But that's not the only thing that will be absent. Notice verse 4 again. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. One of the best ways to describe our eternal home and our eternal existence is to use the words no more. It is easier to describe by what won't be there rather than by what will be there because it's impossible to adequately describe what is inconceivable to us. So John tells us what eternity will be like by using the simple words no more. Bad things will be no more. Evil things will be no more. Hurtful things will be no more. Disappointing things will be no more. Sorrowful things will be no more. The former things have passed away. Try to imagine this. No tears of misfortune. No tears of poverty. No tears of loneliness. No tears of mercy. No tears of pity. No tears of persecution. No tears of remorse. No tears of regret. No tears of yearning for what cannot be. They will never be. God will wipe away every tear. There will be no more grief, no more distress, no more depression, no more sadness. There won't be anything to worry about. Some of you are going to have to do a lot of readjusting in your lifestyle when you don't have anything to worry about. There won't be anything to cause anxiety or grief or distress or sadness or sorrow. 
Another thing about the new heaven and the new earth, John tells us, is that there won't be any pain. Any pain. Don't limit this. Don't think too small. There won't be any kind of pain. We won't have physical pain from disease or an accident or our bodies growing old. No physical pain. But, in addition, we won't have emotional pain from the loss of a loved one or from any other source. We won't have spiritual pain from a guilty conscience because of sin. We won't have relational pain. In other words, we won't ever say anything or do anything that will hurt someone else, and no one will ever say anything or do anything to us that will hurt us. No one will ever be killed again or attacked or assaulted or punched or slapped or kicked or raped or mugged. We won't have outward pain. We won't have inward pain. We won't carry around any burdens. None. I don't know about you, but I cannot remember back far enough to the time when I didn't carry around any burdens or any heartaches. They're just there all the time. Always there. But none of that will be a part of the new heaven and the new earth. So there will be no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All of the old stuff is gone for good. We won't remember it. We won't grieve over it. We won't hurt from it. It'll all be gone. This is life after sin. Look at chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. This is life after sin. Will you be there? Look down at verse 17. It's no wonder after this unbelievable description that we have verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. In other words, when you, when you read about all this and hear about all this, your desire is, Lord Jesus, just come and let's get on to this part, the good stuff. Just come. Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And then watch this. And let him who thirsts come. That is... Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. In other words, if, you, if you're just hearing about this for the first time, or reading about this for the first time, or maybe it hit you for the first time, you've read about it or heard about it, but it's the first time it's really gripped you, you need, you need to come to Jesus. Come. If you're thirsty for eternal life, come. If you thirst for freedom from sin, then come to Jesus and receive his forgiveness, and receive his life. Two chapters in the Bible about life before sin. 1,185 chapters about life during sin. And then two chapters about life after sin. 
Do you thirst? Are you thirsty for that life? Then come to Jesus today. Come to him with a broken heart, a humble spirit, and a desire for eternal life. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head in closing with just a two or three minutes remaining in our time together here, I encourage you to not simply close your Bibles and close your minds, but to think about what you have seen in God's Word this morning. What you have seen, what you have heard, what you have learned about life before sin, life during sin, and then life after sin. It's obvious sin is a central issue in Scripture because the wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're here today without eternal life, and you're still under the clutches of sin, you're still bound in sin, you're still weighed down by sin, you're still guilty before God because of sin, then come to Jesus Christ. Come to Him today. Right where you are seated, right there this very moment in the quietness of your own heart, humble yourself before God and call out in your heart to the Lord saying, Oh Lord, I am a sinner. And I realize that my sin deserves death and judgment in hell, but I want your forgiveness. I want your life. I want you to forgive me and take me and make me the man or the woman you want me to be. Call out to him for deliverance from sin so you can spend eternity with him in this place we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. Father, as we close our time together reflecting on what we have seen and heard this morning, it's remarkable, really, to think that your word is put together in the way it is, that there are merely two chapters about life before sin, and 1,185 chapters about life during sin and the reign of death. And then two chapters about life after sin. But oh, what a glorious life that will be. Virtually incomprehensible for us. Certainly indescribable for us. Father, thank you that you have addressed our sin problem. When your righteous and holy Son became our substitute on the cross and bore your wrath in our place so that we can have freedom from the penalty and the power and someday the very presence of sin. Thank you for his perfect, sufficient sacrifice to deal with our sin. May we see just how sinful we are. Because we remember the story in Luke's gospel where Jesus said, the one who recognizes how much he has been forgiven will love much. May we recognize how great our sin is and how great your forgiveness is and how much we've been forgiven. Father, for anyone who is hearing these words now and does not have eternal life, if there is a prompting from your spirit for them to thirst, may they come. May they come to the Lord Jesus today. 
and come to know him and love him and follow him. In whose name we pray, amen.